Hello and welcome to the death of the Roman Republic. Chapter 19, The Death of the Roman Republic. Last episode, Octavian's propaganda campaign turned Rome against Antony. Antony could no longer be a leader of the Republic because he was controlled by his foreign mistress, Queen Cleopatra of Egypt. When it was time to war, rather than market it as yet another civil war, Octavian focused on Cleopatra. Cleopatra was a threat to the Republic's existence, and she had to be eliminated. Antony would just be a casualty of war. Antony, of course, would defend her, and both he and Octavian raised about 100,000 soldiers each, Antony raising slightly more. While Octavian didn't yet have all the money he needed to pay for his massive army and navy when the war was over, he and Agrippa launched their attack into Greece on Antony. They crushed Antony, culminating in the naval battle of Actium. During the battle, when Cleopatra and her treasury escaped to Alexandria, Antony abandoned his men to follow her, leaving the majority of his navy behind. What was left of his battered navy surrendered to Octavian, as did Antony's army. Our essential question in this episode is, how did the Gracchi lead to the death of the Roman Republic? As a content warning for this episode, suicide is a very prevalent theme and is discussed in some depth to understand why these historical figures took their lives. As stated in previous episodes, I'm never trying to glorify suicide. If you feel as though this is an episode you would like to skip, you can email this show at dotrrpod at gmail.com for an edited mp3 of the episode with these elements played down. Included in the show notes is the U.S. National Suicide Prevention Hotline. After his defeated Actium, Antony's military was about 80 ships and the men who crewed them. Octavian would be able to crush them at his leisure, so didn't immediately pursue Antony to Alexandria. Instead, Octavian focused on taking the surrenders of Antony's eastern allies. Antony went west to the African province to rally the four legions stationed there to his cause. These four legions never would have stood a chance up to Octavian's forces, but Antony would have felt safer with them. His companions had to restrain Antony from killing himself when he learned the legions pledged their loyalty to Octavian. After this, Antony's energy was sapped. The mistakes he made in his life weighed heavy on him. There was no way he could defeat Octavian, and only a chance he would survive Octavian's eventual arrival to Alexandria. He wrote letters to his former brother-in-law, appealing to their past alliance and friendship, and promising to leave politics if he was allowed to keep his life. Cleopatra, too, was trying to keep her position. She had placed all her chips on Antony, and now that he lost, she would likely lose her throne. Before that could happen, she executed Egyptian nobles who might preliminarily try and overthrow her and seize their property and wealth, trying to rebuild her own since so much of it sunk in Antony's lost civil war. She also independently wrote to Octavian trying to earn his favor, saying she was always a faithful ally to Rome. This was true, Cleopatra always allied to a powerful Roman. In this case, however, Cleopatra had bet on the wrong horse. Octavian made no promises to Antony or Cleopatra about their futures. Antony's client kings now swore fealty to Octavian and proved it with gifts and wealth for him. 
Slowly, Octavian was gaining the money he needed to pay for his initial army, as well as the Antonians, who now served him. However, he was still very interested in Cleopatra's treasury. So much gold in one place, to possess it, he would be able to pay his soldiers for their service. Cleopatra knew her treasury was a bargaining chip and placed it inside her family's mausoleum. She stocked the mausoleum with flammable materials that could be set alight at a moment's notice, burning it down and warping whatever was inside. It could take years for Octavian to excavate and turn whatever he could find into usable currency again, time that Octavian wouldn't have. Octavian had to leave the East for Italy because of uprisings against his high taxes for the war. In this climate, Lepidus' son apparently conspired to take power from Octavian. Octavian relaxed the taxes and calmed the people and executed the young Lepidus. However, this minor crisis would be nothing compared to tens of thousands of unpaid soldiers rioting and organizing against Octavian if they weren't paid. If Cleopatra played her cards right, her treasury might allow her to stay in power under Octavian. Nearly a year after the Battle of Actium, Octavian's forces finally entered Alexandria. Antony tried to fend them off with the few forces he had, but was beaten back. As Octavian's forces comfortably made their camp around Alexandria, Antony retreated back to the royal palace with Cleopatra. That night, he enjoyed another delicious feast with her and spoke about how he wanted a heroic death. The next day, he planned an ambitious attack on Octavian's forces. There was no chance that Antony could win a battle or the war, but he might get his heroic death. Antony's forces defected to Octavian before they could partake in his heroic death. Cleopatra sealed herself in the mausoleum with her treasury so that no one could enter unless they climbed in the second story window. Historians Plutarch and Dio, both born 100 years after this would have happened, wrote that Cleopatra purposely deceived Antony. They write that Cleopatra instructed a servant to tell Antony that she was dead. Antony felt like he had nothing to live for and went to join her in death. He stabbed himself in the stomach with a sword, but like Cato the Younger, he didn't immediately die. Antony asked others to help kill him, yet none did. Then, Antony heard that Cleopatra was alive, seen looking out her mausoleum window. Antony ordered a man to carry him to the mausoleum and Cleopatra. The dying man was hoisted through the second story window, and he lay in Cleopatra's tomb. She wept for Antony, but he asked her to be calm. After a last taste of wine, his apocryphal last words were, Roman, conquered valiantly by a Roman. Antony's suicide was based on a misunderstanding, and Cleopatra, very vilely, according to some historians, may have intentionally done this. If she did, she knew Antony's mental and emotional state better than anyone, and could guess how he would react to her death. If she did, she very likely felt guilty for effectively killing Antony herself, the father of three of her children. But Antony was no longer a player in the game, and Cleopatra could negotiate without his influence and without the baggage of his antagonistic relationship with Octavian. Octavian appeared sorrowful at his former brother-in-law's death and remorseful of what their relationship had become. It was good propaganda that Octavian was a heartfelt leader. Julius Caesar, too, 
had shown remorse in Alexandria when Poppy Magnus's head was presented to him. Caesar was also apparently saddened at Cato the Younger's death. Whether or not Julius Caesar or Octavian were truly saddened at their enemies' deaths, now that Antony was gone, Octavian could ascribe good qualities to him. Roman conquered valiantly by a Roman. Octavian peacefully entered Alexandria and told the Alexandrians they were under new management. Alexandrians might not have liked it, but it was far preferable to a violent bloodbath to capture the city. Cleopatra's mausoleum was secured before it could be set ablaze, so Octavian had his most important objective and Cleopatra lost her bargaining chip. Cleopatra was captured and imprisoned, but allowed to attend Antony's funeral. While Romans were generally cremated, Antony was embalmed, like Alexander the Great and the Ptolemies. Cleopatra's health worsened, and her doctor said the 39-year-old queen lost the will to live. However, she perked up when Octavian asked to see her. When they met, Cleopatra was not a proud queen like she was when she met Antony, but a desperate one, like when she met Octavian's adoptive father, Julius Caesar. Different ancient historians tell different subtleties of their meeting, but what is certain is that Octavian and Cleopatra discussed her wealth. Cleopatra would have used all her charms she could, perhaps promising her jewels to the most important women in Octavian's life, Livia and Octavia, and she may have invoked the memory of her love for Caesar, or even tried to seduce the 32-year-old. But her charm won her no favor. Octavian's propaganda proudly stated he was not seduced by the beautiful queen like Caesar and Antony were. Octavian wanted Cleopatra alive for his triumph, whereafter she could retire to a comfortable, private life like her sister Arsinoe had and no longer be the Queen of Egypt. Cleopatra had no intention for such a life, to be a trophy in Octavian's triumph, to be anything less than the Queen of Egypt. Roughly a week after Antony committed suicide, Cleopatra took her own life. She visited Antony's body one last time, then later dressed in her most regal attire. There are different tellings of her suicide method, but the most famous is the bite of an asp on her breast. The snake's venom killed her before Octavian's men could revive her. While Octavian ostensibly wanted her alive, perhaps a dead Cleopatra was for the best. Alive, she still had some potential to disrupt the Republic. Octavian laid her to rest next to Antony. The lovers could rest together forever. Octavian's war was won, and Rome rejoiced. The peace and stability Antony and Cleopatra threatened was neutralized, and the Republic could continue to prosper under the generous Octavian. Octavian stayed over a year in the East before returning to Rome, ensuring its stability so it would not fall to chaos as soon as he left. Octavian still gathered the wealth he required to satisfy his thousands of soldiers expecting their reward. Besides hard cash, some were also promised land and property, so Octavian needed to raise money to purchase land from Italians at a fair price, rather than risking an uprising by simply confiscating it. Egypt, the historically rich and agriculturally productive kingdom that it was, was very helpful for Octavian. Rome long aspired to capture the rich and ancient land, but senators always had to worry that whoever was going to be governor of Egypt would become too rich and powerful. Octavian solved the problem by taking control of it himself, in perpetuity. For the rest of his life, revenues from Egypt would be paid directly to him. Octavian identified potential threats to the future of his rule. Two teenagers immediately came to mind. 
Antony's son Antilius, and Cleopatra's son Ptolemy Caesarian. Both were found and killed by Octavian's men. It was easiest to neutralize them now, as Octavian would know best of all how disruptive a teenager could be. Octavian had other intentions for Alexander Helios, Cleopatra Selene, and Ptolemy Philadelphus, Antony and Cleopatra's children they had together. Octavian left Egypt and delegated that a Roman governor take charge. The governor would take over Cleopatra's role as head of state without any of the regality of a pharaoh. Octavian went to the province of Syria, hearing from more client kings who needed to confirm their rule with their new master. A few were replaced for men Octavian thought would be better allies to him, but for the most part, the East remained the same. It was more practical, and Octavian earned loyalty by keeping kings in power. These kings also brought gifts to appease their new suzerain. The East became stabilized. Octavian was fortunate he didn't have to worry about a Parthian invasion anytime soon, as the Parthians were currently embroiled in their own civil war. It was the summer of 29 BCE that Octavian finally returned to Rome, to great fanfare. Octavian told the various priesthoods of Rome that they did not need to all greet him as he entered the city, but most did anyway. Between Cleopatra's treasury, Egypt's wealth, and the gifts of eastern client kings, Octavian no longer had to worry about a lack of money destabilizing his peace. In three days, Octavian celebrated three triumphs. The first was for his victories against the Illyrians and Dacians, the next was for victory over Cleopatra at Actium, and last was for his conquest of Egypt. It was only in this last triumph that Octavian actually appeared, pulled in a chariot, dressed in purple robes, and a red-painted face. All the famous riches of Egypt that Octavian captured were on display, as were the orphans Alexander Helios, Cleopatra Selene, and Ptolemy Philadelphus, as was an effigy of their defeated mother Cleopatra. The children would be raised by Octavian's sister Octavia, their father's ex-wife. The children would live well under Octavia's care. Octavian freely gave every Roman citizen 400 sesterces. Ever a warlord who knew the importance of his army's loyalty, his veterans received 1,000 sesterces apiece as well as the land they were promised. Octavian had the money to buy the land from Italian communities at a fair price so his veterans could move in, keeping both parties happy with the transaction. Octavian resumed construction projects and lavish entertainment and games for the Roman people to enjoy on his dime. Octavian was 34 years old when he held the consulship for the sixth time. His friend Agrippa was his fellow consul. While Octavian was no longer a triumvir, that didn't dampen the power he possessed. As a triumvir, he and Antony made lists of their subordinates to be rewarded with the consulship. Octavian and Antony had been elected consuls a handful of times while they were still triumvirs, so Octavian and Antony usually gave that up to give to one of their loyal subordinates. Their loyal allies who became consuls gained some prestige, yet didn't threaten the true power of the triumvirs. However, Octavian and Antony, giving up the consulships when they had it to just pass it off to someone else, cheapened the prestige of the office. Now, Octavian would stop bending the rules of the magistrates and restore the Republic to what it was meant to be. At the present, the Senate stood at over 1,000 members, far larger than it had ever been and too big to have any proper debates. Octavian and Agrippa were given the power of Roman censors, which allowed them to expel senators from the Senate. 
Some 50 men volunteered to leave, and about 140 more were expelled by Octavian and Agrippa. They weren't necessarily trying to expel men who just supported Antony, but was more about ensuring the Senate was a prestigious body of Rome's wealthiest, well-reputed men who probably had an aristocratic heritage. As part of restoring the Republic, three other triumphs were celebrated by various generals for their victories over foreign enemies. A prosperous Republic was a victorious one. Senators were getting a chance to prove their skill and earn prestige, once again competing for dominance with each other. Of course, they all knew they were only playing for second, as no one could hope to top Octavian. Octavian stopped controlling the Roman treasury itself and gave it back to its officials. He left it very full after his victories, and peace across the Republic ensured taxes would roll in year after year. Octavian also prepared for elections, so the Republic could finally hold safe elections, uninfluenced by violent factions, as it had been in previous decades. 82 temples were restored under his watch. He also gave out four times as many food stamps to Rome's poor than in previous years. The next year, Octavian was consul for his seventh time, as many times as Marius had been. Agrippa was his co-consul, and this was his third time. On the Ides of January, Octavian had an announcement for the Senate. After avenging his father Julius Caesar, after protecting the Republic from Sextus Pompey and Cleopatra who threatened its ruin, after all the honors and powers given to him, he was giving it up. He accomplished his goals and the Republic was safe. There is no need for him to still hold so much power. He asked the Senate for their permission to resign as consul and retire to a private life. Octavian was in no way going to give up his power. Throughout the speech, and in following questions, senators pleaded that Octavian should stay a politician. While many would have wanted him out of power, they feared the instability that would very likely follow in the power vacuum. So much power was concentrated in Octavian as it had been in Caesar before him. If Octavian was removed from the equation, different factions would break out, trying to seize power and control the Republic following the example set by men like Marius and Sulla and Pompey Magnus and Julius Caesar and Mark Antony and Octavian himself. Politicians would massacre anyone who tried to stop them just as Octavian did in his younger years. Rather than even attempt to return to two consuls leading the Republic, the Senate begged to live under Octavian's rule. The Roman Republic was broken beyond repair. It was better to live under Octavian's supremacy and survive than to fight him and each other for supremacy and die. Rome's stability decidedly weighed on Octavian, and so, with great reluctance, Octavian accepted the Senate's request that he maintain his power and the additional powers they gave to him, all in service of the Republic. The Senate made Octavian the supreme authority of some of its most problematic provinces. Octavian would have supreme control of the Spanish provinces, Gaul, Syria, and maintained his control of Egypt. Beyond the Senate, by the popular will, the people of the Republic would vote in a few days that they too agreed that Octavian should remain in power. And the confirmation of Octavian, the Gracchi's vision of the people ruling Rome through the popular will, was united with Sola's conservative vision that the Senate should lead the Republic. Neither of them really got what they wanted. The provinces given to Octavian had the majority of Rome's armies. Should he ever need to fight another civil war, 
Octavian would have the advantage. As Octavian couldn't be everywhere at once, he chose legates who would govern in his stead. These legates got a boost of Actoritas as if they were a governor, and while they governed on his behalf, they were still subservient to his authority. Octavian would hold command of these provinces for 10 years, like Julius Caesar before him, but the Senate would always extend his command before it ran out. Octavian also kept nearly a legion of loyal Praetorian guards on retainer, with some always remaining in Rome. While Caesar dismissed his bodyguards, Octavian always had someone watching his back. On January 16th, 27 BCE, the Senate awarded Octavian another name to honor him for his service to the Republic. At 36 years old, his name changed many times throughout his life. At 18 years old, Gaius Octavius entered Rome after the assassination of Caesar. Adopted by Julius Caesar, the 18-year-old took his name, becoming Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus, or as we've been saying, Octavian. For his many victories, he was permanently named Imperator, a victorious general, just as Pompey was named Magnus for being so great. With the deification of Julius Caesar, he was named Divifilius, son of God. With this newest honor by the Senate, Gaius Octavius, born to an undistinguished house, would forever be known as Imperator, Caesar, Divifilius, Augustus. This newest name, Augustus, was a new and powerful name never heard in Rome and was very deserving for one so grand. It is this moment in history that most historians choose as the moment that the Republic ended and the Empire began. The leaders of the Roman Republic handed the majority of power to Augustus. Augustus was unmatched by anyone in Octoritas. All his rivals were dead or surrendered to him. His generosity ensured their loyalty, or at least their begrudging subservience. His actions for the Roman people and successful propaganda ensured the people's love, who prospered under his rule. Augustus was not the dictator Julius Caesar was. As Augustus made clear, he would have retired from the political game, but the Senate and people insisted that they needed him. So for the good of the Republic, Augustus led it. The Romans did not call themselves the Roman Empire, nor Augustus, the first Roman Emperor. As powerful as Augustus was, and as powerful as everyone knew he was, he knew he couldn't be so blatant about it. Rome had hated kings since it became a republic, so Augustus always maintained the image that he was serving the republic. The title granted to Augustus was Princeps. He was the first citizen, or first servant, of the republic. The Senate would grant the Princeps two special powers. One was Imperium Maius over all provinces. Imperium Maius, once granted to Pompey Magnus, would give Augustus greater authority over any governor in any province. Therefore, every province was under the rule of Augustus. Augustus's second power was Tribunicia Potestas, the right of a tribune to protect Roman citizens. With Tribunicia Potestas, Augustus could argue whatever he wanted to do in Rome and Italy was to protect Roman citizens, and therefore, he had unlimited power in Rome and Italy. These extra, perfectly legal powers effectively made Augustus the first emperor of the Roman Empire. The last civil war of the Roman Republic was over. Antony and Cleopatra were dead, and Octavian reigned supreme. With the war's end, he became fabulously rich and had no rivals in the Roman world, as no one could match his power or prestige. 
He returned to Rome and generously used his money to help the people of the Republic and began to reduce his own power so the Republic could start to function as it was intended to again. To demonstrate he was the ultimate servant of the Republic, he sought to retire from politics. The Senate instead insisted he stay in politics and be given additional legal powers to help rule their Republic. With the Senate's consent and the people's consent, Octavian obliged them and would do what the Republic asked of him. The Senate honored him for his service by bestowing another name upon him, Augustus. On paper, Augustus was a politician who was trusted with the authority to override any person or institution in the Republic. In reality, Augustus had enough people loyal to him and enough power concentrated in his person to be the first emperor of the Roman Empire, an empire that would last for over 500 years in the West. The legacy of Augustus' empire lived on even longer in the Eastern, aka Byzantine Empire, which lasted until 1453? just 39 years before Columbus sailed to the Americas. In a sense, this is the last episode of Death of the Roman Republic since the Republic is now dead. But under Augustus' rule, the Republic was never restored. And next week, we are going to see why. The true series finale will be the rest of Augustus' life and his death and his trials and tribulations as Rome's first emperor. Our essential question to keep in mind this episode was, how did the Gracchi lead to the death of the Roman Republic. Go ahead and pause if you'd like to reflect on your answer. Very overly simplified, the populist Popularis Gracchi exploited anger at the rich aristocratic senate who held on to a lot of wealth and power. Whether their intentions were wholly pure of heart or not, they used popular votes by the people to overpower what the aristocratic senate wanted and thereby became very popular political figures. The Senate, threatened by their power and influence, first killed Tiberius, then Gaius, when he tried the same tactics years later. However, this idea of rapidly gaining power by appealing to the common Romans is what propelled the careers of many later politicians, politicians who would destabilize and slowly ruin the Republic. Marius, consul seven times, and a general who would march on Rome, had at one time appealed to the people. Marius's nephew, Julius Caesar, who throughout his career tried to gain power by being popular with the people, his propaganda of his conquest of Gaul and the peace of his dictatorship contrasted against the anarchy of the Republic and made him a generally beloved dictator. Yet, too powerful for a cabal of senators led by Brutus and Cassius, he was assassinated for his power and influence. And finally, Caesar's biological great-nephew and posthumously adopted son, Octavian, gained his powers as a triumvir with Antony and Lepidus by a popular vote. The second triumvirate appealed to Romans as the three Caesarians could avenge Caesar and protect them in civil war. Despite Octavian's failures and scandals, he also had some successes, and compared to the failures and scandals of Antony and his demonized association with Cleopatra, Octavian was the far more popular leader of the Republic. Octavian was so popular and so preferable to the anarchy of the Republic that he was made Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. As said, this is super simplified, and as you know, there are tons of other factors and historical figures that played major roles in the death of the Roman Republic. 
but I hope this helped connect the narrative that Gracchi set the precedent of using popular appeal to gain power. This fueled the careers of later politicians who would destabilize and change the Roman Republic and propelled it to evolve into the Roman Empire. The series finale, Imperator Caesar Divifilius Augustus, will be released Tuesday next week, a day early, on my birthday, October 27th. Depending on when you listen to this episode, there might be two versions available for uh, chapter 20 about the rest of Augustus's life. What I'm going to release on October 27th, 2020 is Augustus's life by theme. What he did abroad, what he did in Italy, some struggles he had, some issues he had with his family. That is what I'm going to release again on October 27th, 2020. However, I plan to remaster the episode in the future so that it follows a more sequential order, uh, where it kind of jumps around by theme, but goes through the rest of his life in order, uh, as opposed to jumping around by theme and years in his life. So you might check if there is a Chapter 20 remastered episode on the feed, if you would just like to listen to Augustus's life in chronological order, I would recommend that one. Or if you don't really care and would prefer perhaps to listen to it by uh, theme and his accomplishments and failures, uh, jumping around years a bit, then you can go ahead and listen to the original. But I just wanted that to be clear. Of course, feel free to download both and revisit the series at any time. It is evergreen content. You can always come back to it. Information uh, is not likely to change about this. Tweet or email the show any Q&A questions you might have for the Q&A episode that'll drop around Halloween 2020. Uh, tweet at the show with at uh, dotrrpod or email the show at dotrrpod at gmail.com if you have any questions that you would like to ask of me. Thank you so much for listening 19 episodes in. I know that next week is the true series finale and the podcast isn't going to be quote unquote over yet. But again, in a spiritual sense, this was the death of the Roman Republic, or at least the episode title, and I appreciate you listening along with me as I try to tell this story. So thank you so much. All that said, friends, Romans, countrymen, I hope you enjoyed the show. Check out the show on YouTube at Death of the Roman Republic Podcast. Re-listen to favorite clips and share with friends and help them discover the show. Link to the channel is in the podcast notes. Thank you.